Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel with a working microphone. Ian, how are you? I'm hanging in there. Again, we tried recording this about half an hour ago and we had some technical difficulties, but... The magic of podcasting is that the listener doesn't have to know that, and we just informed them of it, so we, we broke the fourth wall, but I'm trying my best to get through this quarantine. We're about a month and a half in, most of us. I think Rachel's about two months in at this point. I'm trying my best to hang in there. I'm taking it day by day. How are you doing, Rachel? Basically, you hit the nail on the head. I got my last exam this week, so once that's done... Um, I will go out and party, and by go out and party, I will sit on the couch and watch One Tree Hill. So, <laughs> that's I basically... did a Zoom meetup with some friends the other day. It was my girlfriend's birthday on April 18th, which was a Saturday night. And let me tell you, Zoom and, like, some drinks with friends during tough times like these... Goes a long way, not gonna lie. Yeah, like, I don't want to be the, a proponent of drinking, but, like, we have a fully stocked bar at home, and... I don't think I've ever been more thankful for that because basically having a drink at the end of each day is is very helpful right now. <laughs> I was going to say, I do want to be a proponent of drinking. Whatever it is you use to help you unwind on like a Friday night or Saturday night, I urge you to do that over Skype with some friends because it goes a long way towards helping you kind of keep your sanity during times like these. Exactly. And like, I have friends who are like, they downloaded dating apps just to like talk to other people. It's just like, <laughs> oh no, I don't know if I could go that far, but. I miss human interaction. Been playing a lot of NHL 20 lately with friends online. My team with Steve Dangle, our NHL 20 club, we kicked the crap out of Pete Blackburn's uh, NHL 20 isn't club. That, isn't that the team that has Adam and Jesse on it, and you guys raised like a bunch of money for charity too? That, well, that's mainly because of Steve Dangle and his brand and everything. But it's funny because Adam Wilde is awful at the game, <laughs> and he was basically a, a sleeper agent. He played on the other team and was... Making zero breakout passes, just Nikita Zaitsev, like little lofty, and terrible passes. BS up the middle. interference penalties. Well, yeah, welcome to the, <laughs> the game. Welcome to the game. You're in the box or something you don't deserve. That's pretty realistic. I'd like to say that that's one thing the game got right, but we can probably move on to today's topic du jour. Rachel, what are we going to be talking about today? We're going to do zone entries. Basically, we're going to cover everything from control zone entries, dump ins, the pros and cons of each. Um, who's good at them, who creates off of them. We'll also talk about the flip side. So who's good at defending them and, and why that's important to team success and team defense in the long run. Um, basically, if it has to do with the zone entry, we're probably going to talk about it today. And we'll get into a bit of the power play part of it uh, in the Kovalev shift and then finish off with some of our top three. So I'm pretty excited about this because you and I talk about controlled zone entries all the time and you yell about it on Twitter a lot. It's one of my favorite nerdy things to yell about because I feel like it's one aspect of hockey that when you explain it, it's very clearly something that you can see with your eyes. It's, oh, this player carried the puck in with possession, then he made a play, and oh yeah, I can see that Nathan McKinnon in transition is an absolutely terrifying hockey player. <laughs> yes. When you look at the numbers, it's McDavid, McKinnon, and no one else is in that tier when we're looking at the best players at carrying the puck up the ice and creating offense off the rush. Now, I feel like when we use the term zone entry, 
sometimes there's a, a bit of a, some pushback from people. They go, oh, you nerds and your zone entries and your possession and, you know, I care about goals. I care about this, that, and the other thing. But I, I think when you really break it down, we're just talking about the act of skating the puck past the blue line into the offensive zone with possession. It's something that every coach ideally wants in a perfect world. But the hard part is that sometimes that play isn't there. And I think this is where some of the pushback comes from, is that in a perfect world, we would all love to carry the puck past the blue line offensively, you know, controlled zone entry into the offensive zone with puck possession. That's what every coach wants, because then you can easily create a chance off the rush, and that's where you can create high percentage offense. Where's the pushback from when it's the right time to dump in versus the wrong time to dump in? Because this is where I'm, I'm thinking of when you're playing beer league or you're playing NHL 20 and you're skating the puck up the ice and the other team has completely stacked their, their team across the blue line. There's no space to carry the puck in. You can't get that zone entry that you want. So there, I think dumping the puck in is the right play. But I think if you get caught up in that habit too often, then you're willingly giving up possession of the puck too much. And I think in the long run, that's going to have some adverse effects. So what's the right balance you have to strike there? And when is the right time to dump the puck in? Yeah, I think you make a very good point. And I love that you brought up beer league and video games as opposed to like the OHL or the NHL. Um, I'm trying to make this, uh, you know, for, for the, the average listener, yeah. you know, more applicable to their everyday life. NHL 20 is most people's lives these days, by the way, because there's no other hobbies. I still have not picked up a video game controller, and we just got a brand new PS4, and I literally could not tell you what it does other than the little circle and X buttons. So. By the end of this quarantine, I'm going to get Rachel on this NHL 20 club, and she's going to be somehow better than Adam Wilde. <laughs> Who you has probably been playing the game have a better a chance bit. of getting me to play FIFA. Um, but b- back to kind of your question, I would say I like the rule of thumb where, first of all, if you're on the penalty kill, it's always okay to dump the puck in unless you have a breakaway or a clear path to the net. Because if you give the puck up on the penalty kill in the neutral zone, the odds that you're penalty killing again are very slim. However, when you're at even strength, I think some teams and some players are guilty of almost being afraid of the turnover. So I always like the the development of if you have a greater than 50% chance of getting that zone entry and retaining puck possession, then I want you to try it, right? As long as we're not up by a goal with two minutes left in the game, fine. Obviously, time and place. But if it's just regular game play and you think you've got a 50% chance of getting the puck in... I'd really like you to take that opportunity. Now, if you're approaching the blue line and it's a one-on-three because your other two line mates have changed, then unless you have a clear path, I would dump the puck in, but I wouldn't just fire it in and then go and change because that's basically a turnover. I would like to see at that point, fire the puck on net and maybe chase hard and force a whistle. That way you get that offensive zone face-off. It's a zone start. And everyone can reset. Don't just dump the puck in or soft chip because you're basically just starting the other team's breakout for them. And I don't think that's very productive. So if you don't have a 50% chance or more of getting it in, then do something productive. Maybe throw it on net, try and get a face off as opposed to just turning it over. But don't turn it over at the blue line. So there's a lot of research and there's a lot of evidence that backs up some of the statements you're making. I think the biggest one out there is Eric Tolsky's from 2013. That was kind of the groundbreaking research that showed that 
I think you generate twice as much offense off of a carry-in versus a dump-in. You know, taking the puck into the offense zone with possession versus without possession. That isn't to say that certain player types aren't better at getting, you know, loose pucks off of the four-track versus Hyman. carrying the puck in. Yeah, Brendan Gallagher, Brad Marchand, Patrice Bergeron, guys who, if you dump the puck into their corner and send them in a 50-50 puck battle with the average NHL defenseman, they're probably coming out with the puck, yeah. you know? What's interesting, though, is Gallagher's in the top 10 for most controlled zone entries that immediately lead to a scoring chance. So he's good at either one of them. He's just good at hockey. That yeah. line in Montreal with Tatar, Philip Deneau, and Brendan Gallagher... Again, I think it's just one of the more underrated lines in hockey over the last little bit because they can do everything. They can carry the puck in, like you said. They're good defensively. Zone entry off the rush. Yeah, good defensively. Philip Deneau could be in the Selkie conversation like we talked Did about last week. Did you see Austin week. Matthews on the point hockey using sport logic metrics in the Selkie conversation? It was interesting. I, I, again, as a Leafs fan, I've seen too much of him taking certain nights off where it's just engraved in my brain. You see that it's how hard. a sausage is made. Yeah, but I have seen him take significant strides forward. We need to get back to zone entries, which is what we're talking about. What's some of the evidence that indicates that this is a good idea? You know, why are we saying that you should be taking the puck up the ice with possession instead of dumping it in? So I think a controlled zone entry, A, you can use your speed off the rush. And it's a lot harder for the defenseman to control the play if the offensive player is using their speed effectively. If you dump the puck in, the defenseman can very easily guide where they want you to go and they can put their arm out, they run interference. Let's not pretend that they don't do that. But you have three huge options. You can shoot the puck off of a zone entry, you can pass the puck, and you more than likely can drive the net. And if you can't drive the net as the puck carrier, guaranteed F2 or F3 can. So now you're creating chaos in the zone. It becomes way more difficult to defend. And what's interesting is I did a study a couple of years ago using some numbers that I don't have access to anymore. And teams who create chances and score off of either controlled zone entries or just off the rush in general, they A, score the most goals in the NHL, and B, you wouldn't be surprised to find out that they're among the league's best teams. The year I did it, Tampa was in the top five, Boston was in the top five, um... Who else was in the top five? Toronto was, I want to say, like five or six. Um, all of the teams, every team that was in the top ten made the playoffs that year for scoring off the rush. This past year, Colorado, I think, would yes, be in Yes, Colorado there. was, I believe, I want to say four. I'd be really interested to see the Nathan McKinnon on-off differential there because I feel like when Nathan McKinnon's on the ice... They're getting a lot of entries. <laughs> to take a word from the old English language, staggering. Because that was his MVP year, basically, where him and Hall were kind of going at it. And both of their on-off ice differentials were insane that year. But I mean, we we kind of laid out the case for him this year, too. And that yeah. I mean, he's on the ice. Just look at what he's doing in transition. His ability to skate the puck up the ice, gain the zone. And I think this is where we, we start talking about gravity. Because in the NBA, you can kind of see when... The best player on the court, he doesn't just draw in one defender. He draws in multiple defenders because people are afraid of that player. When you have a speedy player coming off the rush and kind of forcing that gravity to pull his way, it's going to open up passing lanes to other players. And this is where the faster and the more skilled you are, the more you're usually able to do with his own entry compared to a slower, less skilled player who kind of has to rely on the more meat and potatoes kind of, you know, grind it out right. uh, bottom six kind of game. 
Yeah, I think the reason you get so much more off of controlled zone entries, quite honestly, is you never give up possession of the puck. When you think about you dump it in, you're ceding control of the puck to the other team, and more often than not, it ends up behind the net. You now have way less ice to work with because you can only go in one direction, and that's technically backwards. Whereas if you are entering the zone with speed, Patrick Kane made this so prominent is you could do the pull-up where you just spin kind of just at the half wall and now you can go north or south with the puck or you can go east-west. There are so many options. William Nylander's the king of that in Toronto. People make fun of him for it, but hey, there's a reason his team has the puck a lot because he tends to prioritize puck possession. Right, and then not only that, if you dump the puck in, now you're getting into at bare minimum a 50-50 puck battle. Like, you're... You go from retaining the puck and potentially creating a scoring chance of any kind to now I'm going to have to get into a battle. It's you have way less teams who create scoring chances off of dump-ins. In my opinion, it's more due to luck than anything else. Can't you argue that aggressive forechecking and smart positional play and if I guess game uh, sense as as a, a role here too because if you're leading the game by a goal in the third period, you're going to be more likely to dump the of puck in and take the safer play. But you're not trying to score at that point. Yeah, we're. I guess we're more talking in terms of the first two periods, the flow of play. If you're trying to generate offense, dumping, dumping the puck in tends to be more of a... It's like you're punting. Brilliant. You know what I mean? Yes, that, exactly. It's like, well, I could take a risk and try to do something to give my team a chance to score, but instead I'm going to take the safe play and just give you possession. Right. And how often does a punt end up in a fumble and subsequent scoring play? Well, I feel like it happens more often in hockey than it does in football. Yes, but the point is it happens significantly less than if you were to just actually go for it. And again, it's funny, this is something where in football... A lot of the evidence just says, hey, go for it on fourth down in times where a lot of NFL head coaches are kind of afraid to because you want possession. It's much better to just have the ball, even if the downside of, you know, going for it and turning it over, that sucks. You have to weigh the the pros and cons. This is kind of what we talked about at the beginning. If you have a decent chance of gaining the zone, like you said, 50-50, you might as well go for it because if you do, now you have the puck in a very good position. If you dump the puck in, there's a chance that you can get yourself into a good position, but odds are the other team's just going to And they have an opportunity possession. to set up. Yeah, and then go the other way. And that's, again, this is where it can be the lesser of two evils. It can be the right play in the right circumstance. And if you have the right player forechecking, for example, if you send it into Patrick Hornquist's corner when he has a step on a guy... I mean, that, that's not even a dump in anymore. That's basically a pass because you know he's going to get that puck. Right, it, it all depends. Yeah, it's circumstantial, it's situational. You just create less when you dump the puck in, and a part of that is you don't have an ability to use your speed because as soon as you dump the puck in, everything kind of goes stagnant. The defensive team goes into their defensive shape. The 1D goes into the corner. They may have support. But then after that, everyone's kind of in place, and in order to score a goal, you've got to have a breakdown of some sort, and it is much more difficult to get a breakdown when everyone is stagnant and in their positions than it is when you're in transition off the rush and everyone's trying to look every which way to figure out where their check is and where the puck could be going. That It's just the way hockey works is much more easier to create opportunities whilst you're moving than when you're not. 
Now, something I'd be curious about your opinion on is that there's an argument that teams like, say, Toronto or Tampa Bay, when they're creating most of their offense off the rush, which, again, is how most offense in the NHL is generated, but when they're generating basically all of their offense off the rush and not quite as much off the cycle, there's an argument that those teams won't perform as well in the playoffs when the game changes in terms of how it's officiated and now you're allowed with a bit more interference and now you're allowed with a bit more this, that, and the other thing that help teams that dump it in a bit more often. What's your opinion on that argument? Because it's one that I hear brought up a lot of times, especially around this time of year in April. Unfortunately, there's no playoff hockey. But that idea that the St. Louis Blues, Boston Bruins style of hockey is just better suited for playoff officiating than, say, a Toronto or a Tampa or a Colorado or a Pittsburgh. So let's get this straight. The solution to that is call the goddamn penalties. Call wow. the obstruction, please. Because y- I'd love to see that, but again, I just I, I know how this has gone we the can't last say, decade. Yeah, of course. And you're totally right. Oh, like they're not suited because it's officiated differently. Well then officiate it the same. Like, I hate to tell you this, but we're like the only sport that does this. In the World Cup final, they officiate arguably harder than they do in group play or in qualifying. That thing is officiated to the letter in the World Cup final, and that's how it should be because you need to maintain the quality of the sport. I mean, you know it's going to get a bit more physical. You know that there's going to be a little bit you more that they let you away You murdering people with. at the net front. We watched a guy cross-check someone seven times without getting a call. Like, I counted. So I would say, you're right, and you need to be able to do both because you can't just be one-dimensional, and only being able to score off the rush is very one-dimensional. Having said that, scoring off the cycle is not necessarily something... If you score off the rush all the time, you don't necessarily ever need to practice scoring off the cycle because you don't really ever get there. So it's one of those things that it's you need to find a balance because you're not just going to play the cycle for the sake of playing it. If you have an opportunity to create off the rush, you should be doing that. And just because the officials forget their whistles in the locker room in the playoffs, like it... To me, I don't think we need to be criticizing teams and changing styles because the officials don't officiate the game properly. Like, I, you and I have talked about this. That's a completely separate problem. And when you look at all the research, it tells you less penalties are called. It tells you more infractions are committed. But it just doesn't get called. And so when you have success over an 82-game regular season to then all of a sudden switch... I don't know if that's necessarily good because then you've got mixed messages and it's you're not used to that style of play. It's not I don't think it's as conducive to success. I I tend to agree that it's frustrating when it happens, but at the same time, it's been happening and if we're going to evaluate, you know, what styles work, what styles don't work, I'm curious how much of the off the rush aspect is limited in the playoffs just because I think we tend to forget about Stanley Cup champions of years past that kind of go against our narrative, and we'll pick the one that goes with our narrative. We'll say, hey, you know, look at the St. Louis Blues. They play that style of hockey. Look at the LA Kings. And then I bring up the Pittsburgh Penguins from 2015-16 or 2016-17, and I go, those teams were trash defensively, but they were really good at moving the puck up the ice and creating lots of passes off the rush. Three on twos, two on ones, east west passes, getting the goalie moving laterally. And even though they didn't outshoot or outchance their opponents, especially in that second year, 
They found a way to outscore their opponents because they were creating so much off the rush. It's funny. They've That's kind of cleaned some Jose things up in years past. Was yeah. I went back and I actually counted because apparently I have nothing better to do. Um, and the way they beat San Jose was the number of east-west passes they used in transition. Yeah, because San Jose had the puck more often than Pittsburgh. So San Jose was one or less, and Pittsburgh was two and a half or more per transition east-west passes. And when they had the puck, Pittsburgh was the finishing team. Like, you can't make an argument otherwise. They won the cup. And so to say that it doesn't work when Pittsburgh legitimately dismantled San Jose and was able to defend their cycle offense and then come back east-west passes back of the net, that's it. To say it doesn't work, I think you're totally right. It fits a narrative. And when you look at... I went back and I I looked at um, who the best players... Players who have the most controlled zone entries that immediately create a scoring chance. So basically, who creates scoring chances off their rushes and some can of, i take a guess yes okay without looking Connor at the mcdavid list. comes to mind yep. nathan mckinnon comes to mind yep. uh jack eichel comes to mind he's not in the top 10 interesting panarin comes to not mind. not in the top 10 Ooh. taylor hall johnny Gaudreau. taylor hall is in there mitch marner nope so do you want me to read you the the top 10 um yeah i'm curious mcdavid mckinnon one two Yep. Braden Point, Taylor Hall, Brendan Gallagher, Vinny Hinestroza, Nick Ehlers, Patrick Kane, Kevin Fiala, Andre Kasha, Matt Barzell. There's my boy Kevin Fiala who keeps coming up in all of these numbers. And it's part of the reason I've always believed in him and he drives me nuts. And I think he was finally starting to turn the corner there right before quarantine started. He was actually having a really solid stretch of play and... Players who are really good in this skill at skating the puck past a defensive um, structure, past a neutral zone trap that is trying to stop you from doing this, the one thing the defense doesn't want you to do is carry the puck past them and make a play. Oh, God, no. So the players who are able to make these plays, the Andre Cashes of the world, the Kevin Fialas, I've always argued that they're underrated because once we fix other elements of their game, you know, Andre Kasha getting in to stay healthy for more than two weeks in a row, <laughs> Kevin Fiala getting in to try it all when he doesn't have the puck, if you can do that, they're so freakishly talented that they're going to help you create offense off the rush. Those elite names at the top, the McKinnons, the McDavids, uh, you know, Taylor Hall, we're well aware how good those players yeah. are. But I think when you hear about a Vinny Hinostroza who shows or up Brendan in these Gallagher, metrics and... Even. Brendan Gallagher, you find out that he's good at everything. That's fair. He's one of those guys, when I see him top 10 in a stat, I'm no longer surprised just because I'm like, yeah, loose puck recoveries, Brendan Gallagher. Yeah, you know, uh, forcing turnovers, Brendan Gallagher. Creating offense off the rush, apparently Brendan Gallagher. Apparently he's just very good at Brendan Gallagher. I love him. He's a great So I think we should talk about the flip side too, which is defending it because teams that defend the rush, and I just watched a presentation um, by the Winnipeg Jets assistant coach, or former now, he's the head coach of Vermont. Um, And teams that defend the rush effectively are the most successful defensive teams. And I'm going to read you a list of the top 10 defensemen at percentage denial. So out of 100, let's say they get 100 uh, attempts against, they deny the highest percentage of them. So just for anyone who's unfamiliar, so basically... Let's say one-on-one, skaters coming down that player's side of the ice trying to gain the zone, get past the blue right. line on him. They don't let it happen. 
This is the defenseman with the lowest percentage of allowed uh, entries against. Right. They're just not letting the opposition carry the puck past the ball. And the best part is, is Ian and I are on FaceTime, and I get to see his reaction as I read out these names. Okay. Matt Niskanen, Jonas Brodin, Mackenzie Wieger, Jonas Siegenthaler, John Marino, Dmitry Kulikov, Shea Theodore, Sammy Vatnin, John Carlson, and your boy, Travis Dermott. So there are so, some surprising hey, names there on there. Then again, there are a few names on there where I'm like, Dmitry Kulikov, Sammy Vatnin, what? I'm like, those guys aren't good defensively, but... Then you find them in these stats, and it's then I have to start asking myself some questions. What is the common denominator in every single one of those defensemen? Um, Good gap control in the in the neutral zone. They're all good skaters. Dmitry Kulikov. Mm, Laterally, he's very good. He doesn't have the speed, but laterally, he is very good defensively. Like he's very good at being able to move with the player, which is why he doesn't have as big of an issue defending speed. And one of the other things I learned from Elaine Nazardine was the guys who have a good gap and who have success denying zone entries use their stick and body differently than guys who don't. So what they'll do is they'll put their stick in a spot to guide where this player that is coming against them, they'll guide it, they'll guide the player where they want that player to go. And usually it's to a spot where they can then attack. Because the player, just be based on how the brain works, if your stick is in a certain path, the player is less likely to take that path because it's not technically seen as open. So all the player has to do, the defender, is, is put their stick in that path and the player is less likely to go where the stick is. And now they can effectively guide them to where they want them to go, use their body position, and then attack, which is exactly what Kulikov and Travis Dermott do. And then they attack right at the blue line. Shockingly, in NHL 20, I base my game on Travis Dermott. I play left D, and I often in the neutral zone, the other team's skating the puck up the ice. Again, I put my stick out. I'll, I'll try to skate them into the boards. I try to funnel them one way, the way I want them to go. And so, your stick is always protecting the middle. Yeah, or the most dangerous part of the ice. I'm like, right. I don't want you going that way. I'm going to get you to go this way. Now, sometimes it depends on the situation. Sometimes I have two players on one side of the ice and, you know, no one on the other side. And I'm like, I'd like to funnel you towards those players because I know I have help there. Other times I'm thinking, I want to funnel you to, like, the red line and the board so that you can't dump it in. It, it depends on the situation. It depends on if you have support or not. Every circumstance is a bit different, but the idea is that you're trying to take away space. You're trying to be as aggressive as possible without getting beat. Right, and I think you brought up a really good point at NHL 20, which is you have to have the support from the forwards tracking back in order to step up. Because if you're on a three-on-two and you want to close a guy, and then you step up and he gets by you, it's a three-on-one with no support... You're then you're getting yelled trouble. at by your coach and your teammates. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're gonna have a bad time. You, it needs to play into how your team forechecks, how they play neutral zone defense. But a lot of times, these teams and Washington is a great example of it. They track back really well, with the exception of like maybe a few of them. I was gonna say that Ovechkin guy. There's the yeah, famous uh, unplugged controller. But yeah. Jonas Brodin. Um, Pittsburgh tracks back well, or they did this year. Winnipeg did a really good job. I saw a bunch of uh, video examples of that. But it's one of those things where if you've got the forward support tracking back, you can step up because by the time you slow that player down or you make contact with them, 
the tracking forward is likely there to support you. So it makes it a ton easier to just step up and make the play the way that a Travis Dermott or a Jonas Brodeen or a Mackenzie Weger would because they've got that support coming back. If you don't I'm have thinking it, Shea Theodore in Vegas, he's got that Vegas swarm just hounding puck carriers. So right. uh, yeah, I've got some freedom to step up here because I've got forwards who are backtracking like maniacs. Whereas if you play on a team that maybe isn't trying as hard defensively, it's going to be a lot harder for those defensemen to step up, and they're going to look bad in these metrics compared to other defensemen on teams that are a bit better structured, especially with respect to their forwards backtracking. So this is why, if I'm trying to evaluate players at this particular skill, I never like comparing one player on one team to another player on another team. I like comparing a player to his own teammates and say, where do you stack up on your team? Right. And then try to take some context into account, because if you have one guy who's going up against the top players in the league... And another guy who's going up against third and fourth liners. Well, it's easier to control your gap against third and fourth liners. They're not as good. Than it is against the... Exactly. (laughs) They dump the puck in more often, sometimes on purpose. Sometimes you didn't even do anything. They just wanted to dump the puck in. But then when you see guys like Brodeen or John Marino or Theodore, where you know they're getting the top competition, even a guy like John Carlson, you know they're, they're doing a good job at that point. And this is something in Anaheim you always notice when you watch a Lindholm or a Manson. They're just so good at clogging up the neutral zone, forcing you to make a decision at the blue line, and then you don't have the puck anymore. You either have to dump it in or, or they're taking it off you. And that's just it's part of what good neutral zone defense looks like. So if we're talking about this tactically, I'm the puck carrier. I want to gain the zone as much as possible. You're a coach or a defenseman. You, the idea is that you're trying to prevent that from happening. What are you trying to do here? What's the best way to defend the rush? Because I guess, again, even man rush, odd man rush, the, the situation's going to differ. In an odd man rush, you have to back up and take away the passing lanes. Yeah, I also think it depends on players. So um, I was having a discussion with somebody about this. When you look at the players we listed earlier, the best at creating zone entries, there is a common denominator in every single one of them. They are all ridiculously fast. So when you're a defenseman and you're playing a McDavid or a McKinnon or a Taylor Hall or Nikolai Ehlers, you almost have to have a bit of a bigger gap because we saw what McDavid did to Morgan Riley when Riley played him on a tight gap. He turned him inside out and was at the net for a goal in less than a second and a half. So you, it depends on who you're playing. You have to give certain players that respect. Now, don't just let them walk in and do whatever they want. But you have to be able to give yourself enough time to adjust if they decide to shift gears. Whereas if you're playing the average NHL player, I think the guiding principle of using your stick and your body to guide where you want that player to go and then to attack them and having that, I would say, the back check coming through the middle the way that Vegas does um, is the most successful way to go about it. You have to, It has to be a five-man uh, dedication to this. Speed does tend to be the common denominator among these players. There is every so often a slower, hyper-skilled player, like, say, Yarmir Yager, or I remember Austin Matthews' rookie year when skating wasn't his forte, but he'd just do these crazy stick-handling moves to gain the zone. You see it sometimes with, like, a Joe Thornton, where if you're just more skilled than the player who's trying to take the puck off of you, you can often make a play and get the puck to where you want it to go. But the main thing here is, usually it's a speedy, skilled player who's trying to burn you off the rush. So you're kind of forced to back up instinctively. 
And that's how they generate that space. That's how they're able to gain the zone because they've backed you off. They've put the fear of the odd man rushing you by darting at you full speed. Now they've got a bit more room to work with, with uh, a change of uh, a change of pace. You know, cut into the middle of the ice, stopping on the wall, skating back to the point, taking the puck behind the net all the way because you're more worried about the slot. So you've given them that path behind the net. The players who have more speed and more skill are often the ones who are able to pull this off. So does this come down from a team construction standpoint? You think that gaining the zone is extremely important, which I tend to agree with. Do we just need to be getting more speedy, skilled forwards on our teams? Is that just the most efficient way of creating offense these days? Yeah, I would say the first thing I look at is how smart are you? Um, like your ability to read the play, your ability to play in chaos, because as we've seen, you can improve skating. You can improve puck skill. There aren't as many concrete examples of improving ability to read the game. Now, I have seen it happen. It's just it's not nearly as often and at the same success rate as improving a player's skating. So I think when you're building, you have to have a player who can think at that speed too. So what makes Connor McDavid so good, the difference between Connor McDavid and Michael Grabner, let's say, is Connor McDavid, a, the hands are a bit of a different story. I was going to say, is a pair of hands. But is... <laughs> you look at Connor McDavid, he thinks the game as fast as his feet are moving. And there are not many players that have that combination, right? You think of Sidney Crosby. He thinks the game probably faster than he skates. Right. So it's one of those things where not only do you need to have the speed and skill to be able to do this, because if you close a guy down at the blue line, now you can go transition offense and get that zone entry right away. You're more likely to score at that point in transition, especially off a turnover at the blue line. But you have to have the ability to think at that same speed or the body just won't be able to function. You won't be able to read the play. You won't be in the right spot. So I think you need to find that combination. But we certainly don't need like a 240 pound six foot six guy. And when you're thinking of players who read the game really fast and just are able to break the defense down faster than they, they're able to react. I'm thinking of guys like Elias Pettersson, Matt Barzell, Mitch Marner, where it almost seems like the game slows down for them because they're so skilled. Patrick Kane's another one. Nikolai Ehlers is one, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking, like, why don't they just go take the puck off that guy? And they know that if they get too close to him or if they are skating too fast one way, he's going to burn them the other way. So, again, if you're skilled enough and smart enough to take advantage of that space, you're going to earn more respect from your opponent. Now, I'm a coach, I have a team that isn't that skilled, but I'm looking to create more of these zone entries off the rush, because I've been reading a lot of research, I've been looking at all the evidence, and it says that this is an efficient way of scoring. If I can gain the zone with possession more often, I can create higher percentage chances, I can control puck possession a bit better. These are all good things that I want to accomplish as a coach. I can't do anything to just snap my fingers and have faster skaters who are more skilled. That would be great. That would be an awesome skill. I'd love to develop that. Yeah, that'd be great. But for now, I don't have it. How do I go about creating more offense and transition? How do I get more of them fancy zone entries that all the nerds are talking about? Um, I think one of the ways you need to have east-west passes, right? And whether they're early, so in the breakout, um, in the neutral zone, you need to try and create instances where the puck can either go from the middle to the outside or from the outside to the middle or directly across ice. Um, and then when you're having a controlled zone entry, even if you don't have skill, you don't want to skate yourself into a spot where you have less space or less ability to make a play. So a lot of, um, a lot of times 
you'll want to try and skate to the middle. Like you want to cut towards the middle. You don't just want to come directly up the boards because then you can only go to one side. You can only turn one way. So I'm a huge proponent of if you have the opportunity to take a step to the middle, you need to do that because it forces the D to come to you the more in the middle that you are. And it also opens up space on both sides of your body for you to make a play. So the more in the middle you are, I think the more effective you can be with the puck. Again, I've been watching a lot of basketball lately. It's my second favorite sport, and it's it's what I think of when I'm trying to compare sports tactically. I think of the best players in basketball at driving towards the rim, at kind of slicing through the middle of the defense. It forces everyone to kind of panic and go, oh, crap, this is the one thing we can't allow. You know what that does is that opens up a quick passing lane to the wide-open player back door. So... Again, this is why when we get mad at William Nylander earlier in his career for not driving the net, it's because if you have the speed and the skill to get by the guy and power your way to the middle of the ice, that's the dangerous ice. And whether it's you creating the shot yourself or them coming to you and it leaving your teammate wide open for a drop pass or a little saucer pass backdoor, I think that's kind of the big thing here. And if you look at the way the defenses are structured... What's the one thing that they want to take away? The middle. You know, they want to take away the house. They want to take and away that space. everyone collapses too, because everyone's coached that as soon as the puck's in the middle, you collapse, which means that there's yeah. ample room on the outside for you to move the puck out to, and now you've got opportunities to make various east-west or north-south passes. You can take the puck. You've got space to make plays. It's one of those things where if you can enter through the middle, you force D, no matter who you are, to respect that. Now, can I ask one question here before we move on to our Kovalev shift? Because I had, we had this conversation with Harmon Dial recently, and it's one that I really like getting into, which is, well, a zone entry is good, but if you don't do anything with that zone entry, what was the point? And this is one where the difference between a Michael Grabner, a Jake Vertanen, and a Kasper Kapanen, guys who are great at northwest skating, sorry, north-south skating, just getting up the ice as fast as they can, beating their man. But then they struggle making the next play to break down the defense off the rush. And the, the best players in the league are the ones who are able to gain the zone and make a play off the rush to break down the defense, whether it's with a pass, a quick move into open space. I think the biggest difference between the players that you named and the players that are in the top 10 at creating off the rush is exactly what we just finished talking about, which is how they think the game. I think Kasperi Kapanen is one of the fastest players in the NHL, and based on your report cards and my watching of him, doesn't think the game nearly as fast as his feet move. I think the same is for Michael Gradner. It's so frustrating because you just you go, man, if, if I could just teach him to make that pass and see that player back door, I'd have won a hell of a hockey player. But when these problems repeat themselves, you know, year after year, month after month, week after week, it's I'm thinking, ooh, is this something that can be coached? I'd like to think it is, but I'm not sure how much you can really teach hockey it sense. Is, I would say you can. It is the most difficult thing to teach, in my experience. It is the single most difficult thing to teach because not only are you altering habits, you're altering how a brain is wired. We're looking at shot selection. We're looking at, uh, well, no, you should be looking for a pass here. And you think, well, what do you mean looking for a pass? I'm used to flying in off the rush and shooting it from the top of the circle. And I'm, no, that's a bad shot considering the circumstances. Yes, compared to anything else, that's not a bad shot. But when option one is firing it from the top of the circle, option two is taking it behind the net and trying to make a pass out front. Option three is the little drop pass to the guy behind you. Option four, saucer pass to the middle. There were so many other better options. 
and you chose the lowest percentage shot of the of what you could have done. This is where I get frustrated. When I see a player, he has a three on two, he's on the outside, and then he button hooks and passes it back to the defenseman, and then they start a cycle in the offensive zone. And I'm thinking, okay, you maintained possession. That was good, but you should have made a play to break down the defense and you failed to do that. And now I'm frustrated. Yeah, like if you do the button hook and put it into the middle of the ice where there's a player there, it's a much better play. It's a much better play. I don't play. mind the button hook. I don't mind it in an even man rush situation. Let's say it's a three on three and a two on two. I don't want to see it on an odd man rush. And that's my big no, thing. No. Odd man rush, you have to get a scoring Absolutely. chance. And if you don't, I think you failed. A hundred percent. Like to me, if you don't get a shot on net on a two on one, it is an utter failure. It is unacceptable in my books. You have. I mean, to... if you miss the net going for the snipe or on the finish, See, I mean, even in then, theory, like I can. No, you screwed up. I can but at least you tried to make manage the play. that. But if you just don't get a scoring chance at all, I can't accept that. Like, I just cannot. I can't imagine that. coaches are too happy when those two come back to the bench. No. I mean, we had a 2 on 0 at York this year, and we did not get a single shot attempt off, and I was furious. Were they doing the pass back and forth thing, and it was one too many passes? Yes, and guess where they found themselves for the rest of the period? Just uh, drinking lots of water. Mm-hmm. You know, and that wasn't the, even my decision. I wasn't even on the bench. Lots of time with the clipboard. Uh, you get to tie their skates a bit. You know, exactly. Conversation. It's one of those things where on an odd man rush, under no circumstances should you not get a scoring chance. Your stick better explode into two pieces. Then I can accept it. Other than that, nah. You know who was really good at zone entries? Who? Alexei Kovalev. Oh, God. He was a treat. Now, he wasn't great at getting back and preventing them the other way. That wasn't necessarily his forte. But uh, he was a true master of just slick hands in the neutral zone. You're not taking the puck off me. I'm taking this puck into the offensive zone. So let's do our Kovalev shift for the day. Kovalev shift is where we hop on the ice like Alexei Kovalev, kind of drift around for a minute or two, and then hop back off the ice. We like to go a bit longer on the Staff and Grant podcast. We like to go about four or five minutes the topic today, zone entries on the power play. Which he was very good at. What's interesting is I've been watching all these old hockey highlights, and when he wasn't trying, it was very frustrating, but then when he decided, I'm going to score, there was very little you could do about it. So I think that that's kind of, it's a perfect like match for what we're talking about. I love the one clip where his helmet comes off. I don't yes. know if it was because of a scuffle. And then he just decides, I'm going to go into beast mode here. And he just dances three guys in the neutral zone. Creates. A, I think he scores on that player. It's a backdoor pass. It was, he's fun to watch. Hyper-skilled player. But we're talking about zone entries on the power play. What is the big question we're asking? First of all, let's just say this. You should be able to get a controlled zone entry on the power play. For God's sake, you have more people on the ice. Now, when you get that controlled zone entry, should you try and get a chance right away or should you set up? How do you, because Ian, for context, yells about the Leafs power play entries in my text messages and on Twitter a lot. So I want to give him the floor. It depends on the night because some nights they're great. You know, some nights the Leafs power play is fantastic, but there are nights where I feel like when you're watching a sports team continuously for 82 games and they do something that drives you nuts tactically you have that friend that you text about it and rachel is is uh, she's she's heard a lot of stuff i am that friend (laughs) (laughs) it's me and mikey stevens 
There are a few people, yeah. yeah. If it's something more emotional, it's going right to Dangle. Yep. <laughs> I, I have my people for that, too. But hockey, I feel like you and I go back and forth, and then Mikey gets looped in, Harmon gets looped in. All of our hockey nerds are so just So what do you think? Would us- you, let's say, because the least power play entries, they bug you. And I understand they bug me, too. Maybe not to the same degree, but why do they bug you? Well, here's the thing. They've been first in power play percentage since Sheldon T- Keith took over. So you, that you really shouldn't be too upset about certain things, but I'm of the opinion that that says more about their in-zone puck movement and how awesome they are once they get set up than their actual ability to get set up. I think they could improve in that regard. Uh, I think a lot of teams can improve in that regard. I think one of the hard parts with any power play is you need to have a legitimate threat on the entry that is going to scare teams, and then you need an option too, I think. I think when you just do the same thing every single time, you become predictable and you become a lot easier to stop. And I think you see this with a lot of teams where they just say, hey, we're just going to drop pass it to our best player and he's going to gain the zone. And it's funny, that's a pretty good strategy at almost every level because, hey, let's get the puck to our most talented player in space, he'll make a play. I don't mind that, but I do like the idea that before you do the drop pass, we've talked about this before, you should at least have the threat of carrying it in yourself. And this is where, when we're talking about ability to gain the zone on the power play, ability to set up, if you can create a really good chance off the rush, you know, 2 on one or you're streaming in down the left wing, you can get a really good shot off from the top of the circle. It's not a bad shot because there's also going to be a rebound that you can probably win the race to because, again, there's five of you and four of them. I don't hate generating chances you know off the rush on a power play in fact i really like the idea of it because i want to force that defense off the blue line if they're coming way up three or four stacked across the blue line it's usually three it's usually one player up kind of four checking the the drop passer and then three stacked across the blue line if they're all set up on the blue line like that i should be able to use my speed and generate something off the rush there and then the next time i come up the ice speeding up the ice they're going to be backing up a little bit because they're going to be worried of the threat of me creating that, that chance off the rush. So I always like teams who, you see it in Colorado with Kale McCarr, he scares the crap out of opposing four checkers because they know that they can't gap up on him too much because he can burn them. That backs them off the blue line. That gives Nathan McKinnon and company more opportunity to gain the zone. So I'm of the opinion that you need to have kind of multiple options, similar to, a, to an offense in the NFL that's going to have a, a great uh, success, is that you can't just have one play that you go to every single time because the opponent's going to blow it up. You need to have a second play. You need to have a third play that work pretty well in unison. I think the best teams in the NHL have those plays, but even the best teams can have frustrating moments, and I think the Leafs are a perfect example of that. Yeah, like I'd like to see teams start to try and get shots right off the entry because there's no reason that you can't get an immediate scoring chance off of your entry and then recover the puck and get into your setup. Why wouldn't you try and take the opportunity for an immediate scoring chance while people are moving, while they're not set up? You have a higher chance of scoring at that point. And Arik Parnas actually came up, I want to say it's called Zephyr, um, yeah. zone entry to formation rate and it talked it was zone entry um for the zone entry resulting in a formation yeah. or or rush shot that's what the r stood for rush right so, so it's one of those things where you should be trying to create immediately and then you recover the puck then you get into your setup but why would you 
take all that speed that you've used and then just slow it right down and have to pass the puck around. Now you've wasted a good 15 or 20 seconds before you probably get a scoring chance that you would or could have gotten on the entry. I think that the argument there is that, well, if you know, if you don't get that puck back, then you just wasted 30 seconds for a not great scoring chance. I think if you're taking that shot, it needs to be a a solid chance beating the goalie. Don't just take a low percentage of a wrister. You need to try. Yeah. (laughs) Like actively try to get a scoring chance. I think that's a shot from the boards. Not great. Don't fire that shot. Or the top of the circle. Please stop doing that too. Unless you're an elite shooter. Some players have the green light from there, but most players If you're don't. Alex Ovechkin and Patrick Laine. <laughs> if you're going to score at least, like, let's say 30 or 40 goals, Fine. go ahead, take that shot. Everyone else, don't. make a better play. Yeah. All right. think that's a good time to hop off the ice. So that is the Kovalev shift brought to you by Major League Sox. Let's do our top three, Rachel. All right. So during quarantine, we've been asking... Our listeners to give us top three this, top three that, because there's nothing to do right now. There's no live sports. You can't go outside other than for your, you know, daily walk or, or trip to the grocery store, or whatever it is that you do when you're outside, which is not often these days. Not much vitamin D for everybody. So I was here's a fun one for you. I took my soccer ball, so in my backyard at my dad's, it's just like it's patio and then it's grass so that we can hit the golf balls in like we can chip golf balls and we can play soccer i took my soccer ball out like put my cleats on and was just gonna like kind of screw around and it started hailing Oof! i was so mad i'm like i'm just trying to like come outside and play some soccer and just kind of hang out get some fresh air and it's hailing chunks to the point where like it was hurting i'm pissed I'm, it snowed last week in Toronto. I mean, this this beautiful spring weather is just welcome to Canada, man. Yeah, it's great. I was pissed. So that's uh, what we're doing. What what what's our top three today? Um, okay, so top three artists slash bands. I have my three. They've always been my top three. But okay, what's your top three? Because this is something I'd have to think more about. Okay, so I my top three, and they probably always will be my top three. Um, the Killers. Coldplay Ooh. and the Backstreet Boys. Hey, yeah. I would have fun at a karaoke bar with you. That would. Be I a good saw time. the Backstreet Boys opening night in Vegas when they opened their residency. Oh, that was so much fun! I've I've been lucky enough that I've seen all three ba- bands play um, multiple times live, and I mean, I still have this thing where I will never ever miss a Coldplay concert. It's just. I saw them play when I was in New Jersey. I've seen them in Toronto. I, yeah, I love Coldplay. I'm, I'm going to cheat here because I'm going to go old school bands, which is kind of my, my real passion of music in terms of the, the bands that I have the, the most kind of love for. And it's, I think Led Zeppelin would be mm-hmm. there. Genesis, which is Phil Collins' band yeah. that he had with Peter Gabriel. Um, I like Peter Gabriel. Mike Rutherford. Yeah, no, they're both really good singers, and the the it was kind of progressive rock, which is similar to like what Rush and uh, the Pink Floyd and those bands were doing. So that was pretty cool. Uh, and I think Queen, just oh. you know, it's hard to go hard to go wrong with Queen. Favorite you know, Queen song. Favorite who? You That's can't pick Bohemian Rhapsody. It's a classic. You can't, you can't pick, pick it. You can't pick it. Okay, if I can't pick that, you can't one. pick. Let's say okay, favorite Queen song that isn't like We Will Rock You, Bohemian Rhapsody, or We Are the Champions. Like, pick a different one. Um, can I pick somebody to love? Yep. 
Okay, I'm pick somebody Mine's to love. Radio Gaga. I learned that song because of the movie. I I'd never oh, heard that song before, that song. and then they started like, "What the hell is this song?" I'm like, "Oh, it's it's not bad. It's pretty good." Ooh, okay. Catchy. So let's do this. Favorite song by each of the three bands you named. Okay, Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven, Ramble On. No, you only have to pick one for each band. <laughs> Oh, I thought I had to pick no, three each. No, you only each. have to pick one. Oh, I was going to say, this is actually tough. Okay. Let's we'll stare at Heavlin for Zeppelin. That's easy. Uh, Genesis, I'm going to go the musical box. And Queen, I'm not allowed to go Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, you I can do that to. if it's your favorite song. Bohemian Rhapsody for Queen. Yeah. I'll say um, for the Killers, nice and simple, Mr. Brightside. Um, oh. I actually really like the acoustic version. Um, I think it's pretty cool. The one that he sings while he washes his hands? <laughs> yes, that one. <laughs> Brandon Flowers, oh god, he is great. Um, Coldplay, it's a toss-up for me um, between the live version of Viva La Vida, I think they do a really good job, and then Fix You. Um, I was going to say, Fix You is my favorite when you need a good cry. Fix You is, uh... I, can, I can play it on piano and guitar, and it's actually, it's one of two songs that I can't get through, three songs I can't get through without crying. Um... And I would say the Backstreet Boys, I want it that way. Just ever since I was like two years old. Just the greatest song. Those are all very good karaoke songs. Oh, yeah. Just throwing that out there. When you brought them up, I'm like thinking the killers. I'm like, okay, Mr. Brightside. And then you brought up Backstreet Boys. I'm like, that's a perfect karaoke band. All right, so next top three. Exercises you can do at home. And I'll put the caveat, if you don't have a home gym, because that's cheating. So okay. like if you're just so a regular person. I feel like person. Rachel I feel like Rachel can help us on this a lot better than I can cuz Rachel's been in good shape over the last little bit and I've been a slob in quarantine. <laughs> so Rachel, what exercises can people do at home because losers like me would like to know. Um I would say one of the things that you is very easy to do push-ups, sit-ups, squats. If you do this might sound a little insane, so please taper it to like your level of exercise. If you can do between 250 and 300 of those each per day and spread them out, like if you do 10 an hour or whatever it is, or can I, 15 an hour. Can I just tell you to stop right there? <laughs> I, 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 I think I speak for everyone when I say I'm just stopping the podcast <laughs> now. I'm just, I'm just. No, but if you can do like, if you do, let's say you do 10 pushups every two hours. 10 squats, or I would probably do a little bit more squats than that. But for body weight, those are the three exercises that you can actually do a ton with because they cover, when you're doing squats, you actually need to engage your core. So then you've engaged your core. You're not really engaging your arms. But when you're doing pushups, you're engaging every part of your body. It's one of the reasons that it's one of the best exercises for you is because, yes, you're engaging your arms and your chest, and that's what it's for, but you also need to engage your core to be able to hold the position properly, need to engage your legs for the same reason. Um, So push-ups... Tighten up those glutes. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Push-ups, sit-ups, and squats uh, for body weight are are excellent, and you can do variations. So, like, if you're doing squats, you can do lunges, you can do... um, like side squats, so lateral squats, jumping squats. Like there's so many things you can do to kind of like change it up so you don't get bored. There's like a million kinds of push-ups that you can do. Um, I only do the regular push-ups because I don't really care to do anything else. I don't need to be doing mountain push-ups or any of that nonsense. 
Um, so yeah. What if I just do like until failure instead of those crazy high numbers that sound insane? Uh, that's not necessarily healthy for your muscles. So if you do it in sets, um, your body's more like it's called progressive overload. So you you gradually start to increase what your muscles can handle. So like for me, um, when I was a gymnast, I used to be able to do a hundred chin ups in a row. And I realized that that is not normal. Um, and now, be- to be fair, you're also like five feet tall and like yeah, but it's all pounds, relative so. to your body. Um, but now I can't do it anymore because I haven't done them in so long, and I injured my shoulder, and I never did the proper rehab for it. Um, and so it's one of the things where when I started to do push-ups again, I had to really work up to it. And now I'm at the point where. Like, I can do 20 without issue, and that was not the case a few months ago. So it's one of those things where if you do sets, so let's say you do, even if it's like three sets of five, then that helps. And then the next day you do, like, three sets of six or three sets of seven. You want to go up by maybe, like, two or three a week, and that'll really help you, whether it's squats or sit-ups um nobody just gets good at doing this stuff like you've got to work at it i was gonna say like i'm worried like when i first start this i'm like it's gonna be pathetic what my actual number is to start but i'm like i guess everyone starts somewhere that's kind of the idea of course like i started so like i'm lucky enough that we have a trx and some dumbbells and stuff at home from um for like a home gym kind of thing and but i've been increasing like i started using dumbbells that were like 10 pounds for various things and now i've doubled that weight or more and it just takes it's progressive overload right you need to be able to train your muscles and i find once you do it the first like four times i worked out i was so sore i I couldn't walk and now if i don't work out i feel terrible but i wouldn't yeah my brother just kind of like he has his 35 pound weight that he's just casually like you know lifting bicep curls and i'm just like screw you i don't like you anymore yeah (laughs) i would say like don't this is the one piece of advice i do not work yourself either to failure or till you puke that's not healthy don't do it um every once in a while it's not the worst just to kind of push your limits but if you're at the point where you're working till your arms give out and or your legs give out or you're puking or you pass out i've had that um that's not healthy either so you want to kind of try and find the balance and then progressively um improve this is good advice from dr dory thank you so much not yet (laughs) give me four years it's gonna say after this master's phd and then we'll be then i'll be dr dory maybe yeah i I want it to happen just so i can call you Dr. oh my god honestly (laughs) All right, yeah, so but, that's an easy way to stay fit. And if you have, like, dumbbells or even resistance bands, like, you can order them on Amazon. Strap them, do squats with resistance bands on or holding a dumbbell or put textbooks or books in a backpack and do it that way. You'd be surprised what you can do, so. It's really good advice. I think I'm going to try to follow some of it. Um we're always big advocates of mental health, and a just quick update at the end here that I'm sure a lot of people are going through, you know, some frustrating times right now. And I'd imagine that if you've had, you know, blips with mental health in the past, that right now is probably not a great time for you. Hasn't been for me either, so... Yeah, my professor asked us to write a reflection and psychologically evaluate our emotions as they do, as they relate to an important relationship in my life. And so that's going very well for me right now, so... If you're struggling, Ian and I both struggle, and I would say we're, it's fair to say we're both struggling right now. So you're not alone. Uh, reach out, talk to your friends, talk to lean on each other because we all need to get through this. And if 
this pandemic does one thing. I wanted to prove to our government that mental health is just as important as going to a physic, like just a, a doctor. I want it to be the same. And I think, I think that's the hardest part right now is that you're trying not to overload the the health system right now because obviously we're trying to keep that preserved for anyone who has covid and we're trying to make sure that hospital beds don't get overused and nurses don't get overused and this that the other thing so anyone who is going through a bit of a mental health downtime right now you're thinking oh crap i'm not sure if this is the right thing but i mean talking to your family doctor about it if it's a, a thing talking to Honestly, anyone, friends, family, people who care about you, I think this is this is the time where you can lean on people, you know? People are there for you. I know one of the biggest things for me that's really helped just in general, because I'm a social butterfly, I love talking, and I've been told I can't leave the house. This drives me insane. One of the biggest things is just using FaceTime or Zoom or House Party or any of those apps where you get to see someone's face. It's crazy how long it'll go. Just like uh, one little FaceTime call, how much better that makes me feel the rest of the day. I highly recommend it. If you haven't been doing it, just try to have one video call per day. And, and I suck with technology too. Trust yeah, Ian me. doesn't we answer had- his text messages for days on end. <laughs> but he's getting <sighs> way better. I, I, you know, there was a point in time where I, I didn't have a phone for like two years. I know, I back don't in, was it 2015, 2016? I... I'm an old man. I'm not used to technology. I'm trying to get better at it. But I highly recommend, whether it's Zoom, FaceTime, pick pick whatever app you're best at using, Skype video. It goes a long way, and I think just seeing people and talking to people right now, because I think what you realize is that you're not alone, and a lot of people are going through some messed up emotions right now. Because let's face it, this has never happened before. Basically, since, what, 1918, 1919 was the last time we had anything. And, yeah... Can't imagine what it was like back then. That was during a war, and they didn't yeah, have Yeah, there the were internet, far so worse things going on in the world. <laughs> I was going to say, at least we have the internet and ways of communicating with people, but I highly urge you to do that. Um, if you can throw some alcohol in there, you know what? I'm just going to say it's not a bad idea, but socializing at a times like these, uh, I heard someone say that um, we should call it physical distancing, right. because being social right now is extremely important. And that's when we really should be leaning on people. We're social creatures. And at the end of the day, if we're not getting that socialization, that's what like isolation does to, you know, that's what the uh, like kind of solitary confinement in prison. It's why it's such a terrible form of punishment because you take the socialization away from human beings. We lose our goddamn minds. So uh, (laughs) try to keep socializing, try to, Make as many calls and FaceTimes as you can realistically, you know, call your family. Just do it safely, please. Yeah, please stay indoors. (laughs) Yeah. All that being said, do do this from home. (laughs) And we'll be back next week, and uh, we've got some fun guests coming on at some point in the very near future, so we're excited about that. But until then, um, like Ian said, stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, stay social. Just do it safely. Hang in there, everybody. Uh, Let's physical distance. Let's not socially distance. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.